So it's almost Father's Day, and we're going to be talking about fathers uh, a little bit on our show. And, you know, father is an F word, and we might actually also be using other F words, too. Not to describe our fathers, obviously, but, you know, it might come up. So just, you know, be warned. Happy F word day. And remove your fathers from the room. (laughs) Hello, this is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined this week by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. I think we're alone now. Mark Oppenheimer isn't here. Um, yeah, so Mark isn't here. He's running his storytelling conference at Yale. Or is that like a Brooks Brothers warehouse sale? I'm not sure. <laughs> and we have a special episode today. Father's Day is coming up. So we have like a Father's Day-ish episode. And we have actually, we have something from you, right? We do. We have a story about my own father, the father of all stories, which I recorded live uh, for our beloved friends in The Moth, which I will introduce in a little bit. We also have Matthew Polly joining us in studio. He has a new biography of Bruce Lee, the father of martial arts. So we're just keeping it on theme today. And can I tell you, if you love your father, you should get him Matt's book. It's a good book. And we have um, Mark coming in later on in the episode to do a pre-recorded bit with Arnold Gorlick, who is an indie movie theater proprietor. And all I can hope, honestly, is that Mark pays for indie movies. That's right. Because otherwise he is a monster. So, yeah, like, it's just us. What's going on with you? Isn't it like an amazing kind of, you know, just sense of freedom? It really is like dad's not I, in the yeah, house. Yeah, I keep looking over being like, is he gonna, am I going to get in trouble for that? We could watch TV. We could eat <laughs> breakfast. Food, you can do whatever you want. So you, you have Ben Cohen back. He's back from the war years. The war years. Yes. My husband, Ben Cohen, for those of you who, do, who have not heard me talk about him, is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and he covers the NBA. So basically what he was doing was going from Oakland to Cleveland, then would have gone back and forth. But the Warriors won in four, which I was not expecting. And all of a sudden on Saturday, he's like, OK, I'm coming home. And I was like, wait, what? I so, like thought I had like <laughs> at least another week of this. You're, you're rooting for LeBron. It's like, I have the bed all to myself. No, I just, I had to like clean the apartment. I had to make it like habitable for another person. <laughs> I could order ramen every Yeah, like night. I had to tell the cat, like, party's <laughs> over, guys. But, is, it, you know. is it weird to sort of have that, you know, your life kind of intertwined with the NBA final schedule? Yeah, where like Steph Curry determines like my life, Steph basically. Steph Butnick, right. Yeah, Steph Butnick Curry. Um, yeah, it's kind of fun. I don't know. Um, what's going on with you? Just, you know, adjusting to life post-grand marshalhood. We're still talking about that, aren't we? It's not the same. I walk down the street and I wave at people with the back of my hand and no and one people waves People don't back. like it. No. People are like, why are you wearing a sash? It's been two weeks. Uh, there's a lot of news, though, of, of these here, them here news. Jews. So last week, uh, there was supposed to be a, a friendly game between... Israel and Argentina in soccer, which is supposed to be the last game Argentina plays before going to the World Cup, which is a big deal because they're one of the favorites to win the whole thing. And like Messi, you know, that great player. Everyone's super excited. A couple of weeks before the game was supposed to take place, the Argentinian players started getting threats from Hamas and PLO saying, uh, if you come to Jerusalem and play this game, we will kill your children. And so being kind of, you know, normal people like, you know what, we don't really need this game that much. Forget about it. It's canceled. Uh, now, you could get really angry about the political yeah, implications or, you know, giving up to terrorism or like all these things. But I think we're missing a huge business opportunity here. Like Israel has only been in the World Cup once in the 60s. We've never achieved it again. It's but, not like the Eurovision. But listen, here's the way. Like, I know what we should be doing now. We have tough guys, too. We'd be like, hey, listen, LeBron, 
here's the deal. You play the game against the Warriors, uh, we're going to have to kill children. So how about you just not play the game? Israel could win everything. We could be like a sports powerhouse. That is horrifying. That's amazing. But also one of your better ideas. It's like it's like Fauda only with sports. <laughs> By the way, we've been getting like a million calls about people like, are you watching Fauda? I, I, I can't. I'm such a wimp. I, I can't watch television shows that are super stressful to me. Yeah, like 24 really just like I, I raised watched, my blood pressure. I watched, I've, had, I've had enough. I can't even watch Homeland. Real life stuff. Like I need to watch like comedies. I mean, the Mets is about as stressful <laughs> as, as I'll get. But the amazing thing about Fauda is that if you watch it, there's a certain feature where you, you could tell, watch it. Will you tell listeners who haven't, like, what is it? It's, I don't watch it. It's a show on Netflix. It, it tells a story of this uh, elite Israeli army unit that goes into Palestinian cities pretending to be Palestinians and, you know, kidnaps and does all kinds of anti-terrorism activities kind of undercover. It, it makes 24 and Homeland look like Mr. Like Rogers' neighborhood. Play. It's like so intense. But the most amazing thing about it is there's a feature on Netflix where you could watch it dubbed. So you see this like obviously Shlomo looking dude, like, you know, head shaved, like all super Israeli. And he opens his mouth. He's like, hello. Uh, it is time now to go into the Palestinian city. Be like, what? <laughs> dude, No. Be like, eh, maze Palestinian city, FO terrorism. Like, it should be authentic, man. So who should be doing the, like, the voiceover? I mean, besides me. Maggie Patinkin. No, just me. It's just you just... in your, like, Shlomo accent. Yeah, like throughout. So Mark was, like, having FOMO about not being here this week. And he actually sent, I think he actually just felt really strongly about this news story. He sent in his own News of the Jews rant. So here it is. Here's Mark. This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. A Catholic school in Connecticut apologized to a state public school after its students used anti-Semitic chants during a lacrosse game. During the May 30th state playoff game at Staples High School in Westport, fans seated in Fairfield College Preparatory School's student section chanted Happy Hanukkah and We Have Christmas and sang the dreidel song directed at Jewish players on the Staples team. All right, so the first thing to say here is it turns out the Staples High School team is only about a third Jewish, which, by the way, like if a third of a, of a wealthy suburbs lacrosse team is Jewish, it's like Jews have kind of arrived. Like now we are a third of the team on in the preppiest sport known to man. Jews are playing lacrosse. Like this story reads like a victory to me from the start. But okay, the Catholic high school's fans should not have been chanting taunts that made light of the students' Judaism. Um, certainly if you look at comparisons, if you had an analogy where white fans were making light of black students being on another team. Yeah, I mean, clearly this is this is wrong. This is bigotry. On the other hand, chanting, we have Christmas, you know, if my kids were on that lacrosse team and they heard the fans on the other team chanting, we have Christmas, they'd kind of be like, yeah, they have Christmas. I mean, I don't know. Some things are kind of true. That's not some horrible stereotype about the Jews that they don't have Christmas. We don't have Christmas. And a lot of us kind of wish we did. It's sort of the best holiday known to humankind. So, you know, all in all, like this is the happiest story of anti-Semitic chanting of the week. Um, what I really would have liked from this story is that at the end there was poetic justice because Staples High School won the game. But they didn't. The Catholic school won the game uh, in overtime by one goal. But you know what? They do have Christmas. How far have we come in America that anti-Semitic taunts equals happy Hanukkah? <laughs> the Nazis march with tiki torches chanting an easy tzom gedalia to all of you. <laughs> Wishing you a sweet, a sweet new year. Happy and healthy. No, I like this one. This is also a peak Mark story because it's like Connecticut, <laughs> Tony Suburbs. So glad. So glad we can get Mark in here. <laughs> one other story that we just wanted to make sure we get to. 
Rabbi Mike Moskowitz is um, the first, as of this week, is the first Orthodox rabbi to serve at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, which is the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue. It's um, in Manhattan, right, actually near our offices. And, you know, we, we got the press release. We heard about it. We were so excited about it that we actually asked him to come into the studio. So um, here we are with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz. So... um Here's the thing. When when someone imagines the rabbi they might meet in the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue, they don't imagine a dude looking like you with a black hat and a, and a beard. They don't imagine a traditional Orthodox rabbi. Tell us about the path that got you here. Thank you so much for the invitation. So um, I'm a rabbi at the synagogue. There's a whole clergy team of wonderful folks. Uh, my official position is the scholar-in-residence uh, for trans and queer Jewish studies. But the path here was actually a very traditional rabbinic trajectory. I was a rabbi at Columbia University uh, with H. New York. I was the rabbi of the old Broadway synagogue, which is an Orthodox synagogue uh, right by JTS. Um, And I had uh, transgender congregants and a trans student at Columbia that was really struggling. And as a rabbi of a synagogue in Harlem, it's a pretty diverse and progressive space, all things considered. Um, And as I started to meet more trans folks and create a space that was trans inclusive, I recognized um, that I was in a unique position to try to provide, um, you know, some scaffolding to support uh, the trans-Jewish experience where people shouldn't have to choose between a gender identity and a religious identity. And so as you kind of begin or embark on, on, that, uh, on that mission, I imagine uh, that there were some people uh, in, in your community who looked at your work and said, what, why, why are you doing this? I mean, it's, it's highly, uh, if I may, unorthodox. Um, did you did you face a lot of struggle uh, going through that? So internally, I did not find uh, any sort of struggle. There was a um, kind of an invitation to be a light in the darkness where other people weren't. Um, so personally, I found a level of clarity and comfort in knowing that um, I felt like I was doing the right thing. But from the outside, uh, there's still tremendous opposition um, on the daily uh, in terms of emails, uh, you know, Facebook posts. Saying what? saying that these things are actually mutually exclusive. You can't be an Orthodox rabbi and be supportive of the LGBT community. I wrote an article about marching with pride that I really feel um, when so many marginalized segments of society are being targeted, like we as Jews have a responsibility to stand up because we're also targeted as a minority. Um, And so the idea that somehow we can be passive or apathetic here, right? Like you have to choose sides. It's either about standing up for those who are the most vulnerable or it's about recognizing that it's probably just a matter of time before... Uh, we don't have the privilege and the entitlement and the agency to do something about it. And it, how do you respond to someone who goes on Facebook and just, you know, kind of like angrily rants at you? But, you know, being gay is not allowed in the Torah. It's halachically bad. Like, wh- wh- how, do you, how do you kind of square that? Because, again, you, you see a lot of people in the Orthodox community who are, who are very sensitive to these issues. Uh, but you really took a stand, you know, kind of like a, a, a leadership stand on it. So gender identity and sexual identity are very different. And I think um, it's very easy to hate things that you don't know. And it's really easy to kind of mush all of the stuff that you haven't been exposed to in one little space. So I think the first thing is to try to create space for a dialogue to recognize that the struggles of uh, gender identity are actually very different, uh, both culturally, socially, and also within Jewish law uh, as one of sexual identity. 
um, I deeply believe uh, in the autonomy of each person's relationship with God, that it should be the result of our unique life experiences. If we can't create a, a safe space for people to be authentic and genuine um, who they are in that relationship with God, then what is religion, right? It's not about me in, in intimacy with, with God. So um, the Torah says what the Torah says, and everybody needs to figure out what that means for them as an individual. Um, for I think there's a lot that we as Jews can learn from uh, the trans world about being present in the moment, like in the most authentic space, um, and embracing a certain amount of fluidity in our relationship with God. So I'm curious, given sort of the rigid differentiation between men and women in ultra-Orthodox spaces, how do LGBTQ issues arise um, in that world? So again, within the gender space, uh, many people find it very affirming. Um, in a, for the trans kind of experience to exist, there needs to be differences between uh, men and women, or else there's no space to transition. So when one walks into an Orthodox synagogue, you have to make a choice right away. What side of the mechitza do you want to sit on, right? And so because there's so much gender-based spiritual practice, for people who find that type of um, spiritual practice practice affirming, um, the challenge becomes one of um, providing the invitation and the resources to help the individual navigate all of those gendered choices in an Orthodox synagogue about being counted in a minion, uh, getting in, in aliyah, chavra um, kadisha issues. There are all sorts of gender-based spiritual practices uh, that make it a little bit more um, nuanced, right? Whereas in a, in, a, in a more egalitarian space in that uh, area, um, so you don't have to make the choice, but then you also don't get the the affirmation. It's interesting when you when you call it affirming. I would imagine it could be very in, intense and frightening for someone who for whom gender identity is sort of a, a question at a certain moment to have to choose a side. One of the things that um, is really complicated in the way in which halacha kind of creates a binary around male and female in certain kind of halachic um, spaces uh, doesn't necessarily resonate with people who would adopt a, a gender non-conforming identity. Um, and then it's complicated. Um, ideally, uh, a trichitza right? Uh, allows for those <laughs> who don't feel like they fit in the binary. You know, I often talk about um, borrowing language from, you know, the queer community that I was assigned secular and then identified as ultra-Orthodox. I'm now some version of religiously non-conforming. Um, and that kind of space to be able to recognize in present tense where I am in relationship with God um, allows for it to be much more uh, both alive and also conscious and deliberate. Meaning if every Jew would be as aware of their religious identity, the way in which trans folks are about their gender identity, there'd be no apathy. There'd be no it would just be a constant kind of recognition of self. We'll all be on fire. That's what we're looking for. You wrote a, a piece for us in Tablet uh, that ran last Friday that, that I found very moving about the importance of accepting uh, people's choice of their own names uh, and why that actually resonates sort of spiritually as well as just, you know, civically. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, in the Jewish tradition, we believe that names are very powerful. Uh, it emanates from the power of speech. God said, let there be light, and there was. So this world was created through letters, um, and we find this throughout throughout the tradition. You can take a look at the article. Um, there's a way in which trans folks, uh, in having to distill who they are, in terms of an identity, especially if there's been a shift, uh, into a name, um, is often the most immediate kind of point of entry in a, in a conversation that either allows for a person to be rejected or accepted. And so when a person speaks about their pronouns, right, and their name, 
Um, it's not simple in the mind of a trans person, and that's why I co-authored. That's why one of the reasons why I co-authored it with uh, with a trans man is uh, to have it in that first person experience. That hello, my name is right is much more of an exposed experience where there's a posture of vulnerability and fragility for a trans person. So what I think one of the things that's really important as an ally is to listen to that voice about how the experiences that we have. Right? Hi, are you Rabbi Maskwitz? Are you Mike? Like. The stakes there actually aren't really high for me. I don't care. Um, but for a trans person, right, it's actually, it represents so much more of the way in which they're being seen. And how does that play out within a Jewish context? So some people choose to use a Jewish name or a Hebrew name or, um, you know, it's something that we have within the tradition as being very, very powerful. Um, we have deep in our tradition, if God forbid a person is sick, uh, we add a name, right? Because there's a way in which we want, um, you know, and mentioned in the article that sometimes it's um, kind of forward leaning. Like in last week's part show with Yoshua, Moses changes his name in anticipation of an event, right? Um, the Torah says that we can no longer call Abraham Avram, right? We have to say the new name and not the old name. And we, we find this struggle. It's literally in the struggle with the angel, right? That Jacob gets a name change from the individual to the communal. And uh, the mystics to tell us that it was that moment where he, he was um, went back for the Pachim Katanin, like the most, the, the smallest, the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. So I think it's in this space of struggle where we try um, to create new space uh, to uncover the divine will. And it's in that place of the progressiveness of halacha, which is a language of hiluch, which means to go, which is where the Talmud says, God, exists in this exile. It's in that partnership with God to explore and to expand in these new spaces. Um, as the world continues to move, how can we allow the Torah to speak in present tense? And so I think within the Jewish tradition, um, a name really reflects uh, the embodiment of being able to be present as one's fullest self. It seems like there is space within even religious Judaism for trans people, like for for trans folk, for for a questioning. It actually it actually sort of works well within that structure. I think if we want there to be space for Jews, then there needs to be space for trans Jews because one of those is a choice, right? Religion and a religious identity is an absolute choice of showing up and being present in that relationship with God. Uh, gender identity, sexual identity, right? Those are actually aren't action items. Those are just identities that just are. So if we force a person to choose they uh, will walk away from religion. So if we believe that um, God is everywhere all of the time, even Uncle Moishi knows that, right? Hashem is here, Hashem is there. So then like, what are we doing, right? We're just speaking to the reality that God's everywhere. And for each person, there's a responsibility to ask the exact same question. Like, what does God want from me right now in this moment being who I am? And I don't think it gets more religious than that. Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, how can people, they can find you at CBSC, but where else can they find you? Um, I'm on Facebook and also uh, RabbiMikeMoskowitz.com hosts a couple dozen of my articles uh, and there's a way to contact me there as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. your favorite thing about Bruce Lee so we can check your levels. <laughs> okay. My favorite thing about Bruce Lee is that he was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong and that he really actually wanted to be a dancer, but Kung Fu paid better. That's amazing. Stephanie's mind is being blown <laughs> right now. Are we good? 
Okay, our Gentile this week is Matthew Polly. His latest book is Bruce Lee, A Life, which came out just last week and is the perfect Father's Day gift. Hint, hint. In addition to being a Rhodes Scholar, he spent two years studying Kung Fu at the Shaolin Temple in Henan, China. These days, he's a fellow at Yale University and lives in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome, Matthew. No, thank you for having me. I don't know if you remember, but you were on our first, like, our test run show before we even did a pilot for the show. I did when you guys were like little baby, baby podcasters. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were just little podcasters. In the little office, huddling for warmth. That's and, right. Everyone was nervous, didn't know what would come of it. And look at you now, how you've grown. And you, and we appreciate you writing a book so that you could come back on the show <laughs> three years later. It was my goal, actually. So I'm going to be real with you. When we started talking about having, you know, we decided that we were going to have you on. You had this new, great new book about Bruce Lee. There was a bit of a divide, right? Mark was really excited. Liel was really excited. They were like, Bruce Lee, amazing. And I was sort of like... Bruce, Bruce, Lee Lee, Bruce Lee. No, I knew who Bruce Lee was, obviously, <laughs> but I didn't really get. I was sort of just like, why are you guys so excited? You know, the book's amazing, obviously, and I learned a lot about Bruce Lee. But why should, like, explain to someone like me, who I think represents a fair amount of our listeners, the ways in which Bruce Lee is responsible for basically everything I see right now on TV. Right. So the first thing that's amazing about Bruce Lee is he is the first Asian American since the advent of sound to star in a Hollywood movie. Uh, so he he's the Jackie Robinson of Chinese actors, basically. And he broke barriers that we're still trying to break down with Fresh Off the Boat, Jackie Chan's career. Uh, the second remarkable thing about Bruce Lee is he probably introduced more Westerners to East Asian culture than any other human being to ever live. So before Bruce Lee, there was maybe a few dozen kung fu and karate schools in the Western world. And then afterwards, there were 20 million. And so when you go... He's sort of his yin to my yang. That's Bruce Lee. He introduced the Taoist concepts and popularized them to a Western culture. And so, you know, our our producer, Josh Cross, who, like me, is an enormous fan and absolutely, you know, devoured your, your book, um, told a story about driving on a bus in Mexico and the entertainment on this bus was obviously Bruce Lee movies. There seemed to be something incredibly universal about that. Really, it plays everywhere and it is sort of immediately understood. What is it about the, the martial arts, the, the particular genius of Bruce Lee that just carries this message well, everywhere? Bruce Lee had, I think partly because he was Chinese uh, and partly because he was small of stature, he looks like somebody who was a skinny little dork who worked out all the time and became a superhero. He wasn't big and strong. He wasn't Ali. He wasn't imposing. And so Bruce Lee, he's every underdog's dream. If I just worked hard enough, I could be as total badass as Bruce Lee. And I think it's universal in that sense. So um, you God of the Wu-Tang Clan thinks he was the best guy ever. When he was growing up, they were all into Bruce Lee. In Africa, in Eastern Europe, he was a symbol of resistance to communism. They would sneak enter the dragon tapes into Eastern Europe and they would watch it. And so the the first Bruce Lee statue ever erected was elect, or erected in <laughs> Bosnia-Herzegovina in Mostar to symbolize uh, equality and justice and solidarity. Stalin, we say to you, you face our feast of fury. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so somehow Bruce Lee seemed to capture that underdog spirit as someone who was an underdog and turned himself into a hero. On the statue, by the way, it said, Nebishas of the world unite. Exactly. Now, you speak from experience, right? You are 
a Shaolin master. <laughs> Tell us about it. How, how does a how does a scholarly gentleman from Connecticut? You mean Gentile? Find a, a scholarly Gentile gentleman, <laughs> gentilic gentleman, gentilic find, gentleman. Yes. Find himself uh, at at the kind of the highest yeshiva of of you know martial arts on earth. Well, I was the classic Bruce Lee geek. Uh, I was a skinny, bullied 12-year-old, and I saw Enter the Dragon for the first time. It's a kind of archetypal tale of Bruce Lee <laughs> nerds. He just jumped off the screen, and I thought, because I was 12 years old, I was thought, he's badder than Luke Skywalker. <laughs> That's how bad I thought he was. And he was real. Um, no one had ever done what he did on screen. Um, we were used to the John Wayne punch. Some big white guy throws this punch from out from right field swinging around. And so to watch him kick, punch, snap, whirl the nunchucka, I ran out, bought a nunchucka, <laughs> cracked myself in the skull several times. <laughs> put that broke, n- broke a few vases. That's and right. Injured, yeah. uh, put that nunchucka away. Um, but I continued studying kung fu and I was I was a true obsessive so I ended up, uh, after I went to Princeton, dropping out and going to the Shaolin Temple in China to study Kung Fu with the monks who originated it. What, what was that like? <laughs> what, was, what was day one in the temple? Uh, day one was the Chinese communist officials saying, how much money can we get from you? <laughs> and who else was there? So there was about 10,000 uh, young Chinese kids. Kung Fu in China is their version of Ritalin. So when they have kids who get into fights and they can't do anything with them, they send them to Shaolin. It's probably far more effective. It is. It is. Like if you stand in line for a while and the monks hit you with sticks every day for six hours, like you reform. It's military school. Um, and you do have an unfair advantage, right? Because you're not your average, you know, small statured Chinese boy. You're a large American man. I was I was tall and skinny, like uh, 6'3", 155 pounds. So it was like a twig blowing in the wind. But... Um, They looked at me and they thought, you're not going to last a week. (laughs) So actually the first day they tried to be really gentle, which didn't matter because the second day I could barely get out of bed. Um, But eventually, because I was still young and and flexible, was able to uh, convince them that I was there to stay. And so by the the time the six months rolled around, they started to treat me like one of their own. So how long did you end up being there for? I was there for two plus years. Wow. And became the first American accepted as a disciple of the Shaolin Temple. That's amazing. So had you, so while it's this like was- like live animation Kung Fu Panda story. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I would actually watch that, like yeah. that Pixar movie. And so I don't want to spoil um, any of the fun because I think much of the fun of this book, beside the great writing, is is kind of how explosive the narrative is and how it really goes from like one unlikely turn to another. But tell us the story of, of this life, cut tragically short. So uh, Bruce Lee is amazing because he was born in San Francisco. His father was an actor touring in America, and Bruce Lee was born here. Three months later, he goes back to Hong Kong, and then he he becomes a childhood acting star. So he was kind of the Macaulay Culkin of Hong Kong. His other great passion was street fighting. He was the hyperactive kid in the family who his nickname was never sit still so he got into Wing Chun not to defend himself but actually to be a better street fighter Uh, and that passion got him into more and more street fights and eventually the police came around and said if you don't do something about your son we're going to put him in jail and his parents said you know you're an American citizen maybe it's time you uh, exercise that right so they essentially banished him to America where he ended up going to college he became a philosophy major uh, and married his wife, Linda, uh, and decided he 
he realized he couldn't get any decent acting jobs as an Asian in America. Uh, so he decided he'd become the Ray Kroc of Kung Fu, launching franchises across the country. Uh, and while giving a demonstration, he was discovered by a Hollywood producer who took one look at him and thought, I think I can do something with that guy. That's where, how he became Cato and the Green Hornet. And from there, his career launched as a Kung Fu martial arts star. And as chock full of, of surprises and revelations as your really meticulously researched book is, how long did it take to research this thing, Mother? It took me about uh, three years to research, to read everything that had ever been written about Bruce Lee and then go interview about a hundred, over 100 people um, to fill in the gaps where things didn't make sense or stories crossed over. And then I'd never written a biography before, so the first draft felt a lot like my first book. It was very memoiristic. And then I basically had to take out all the personal me, I stuff. All the you and all, put in all the Bruce. Exactly. Well, but you did deliver one exquisite, shocking <laughs> piece of news that when delivered to me, uh, left me literally speechless for a good, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, tell us, what did you find? So one of the great uh, revelations of the book was everyone for the last 45 years has believed that Bruce Lee's we knew he was Eurasian. We believed his European ancestry was German uh, and probably German Catholic. One of the stories was that his grandfather was a German Catholic priest who impregnated a Chinese parishioner. And then the mother was, his mother was adopted by a Chinese family to take care of her. And they actually, t I think she told her children this because the siblings told me this when I interviewed them. So that's what I thought was true. I wrote but, it. But Catholics. But Catholics. Uh, one day I was doing one of those weird deep Google searches where you find yourself on some website that you've never heard of before. And it, it turned out that Bruce Lee's great-grandfather was Dutch Jewish. And the reason we didn't know is because he changed his name to Charles Henry Maurice Boseman, but he was born Moses Hertog Boseman, the son of a butcher in Rotterdam, Holland. <laughs> so a son of a butcher from Holland goes to Hong Kong. He goes, goes to, Hong to Shanghai, Kong. actually. No? No, he goes straight to Hong Kong. Um, he joins the Dutch East Asia Company. Uh, he goes to Hong Kong. He gets involved in what was called the coolie trade, which was basically uh, Asia's version of the right, slave, slave trade. trade. <laughs> <laughs> um, he buys himself a Chinese concubine. He has six kids with them. He goes bankrupt. He abandons his family, moves to California, changes his name, and remarries. Uh, his children uh, grow up without a father, but they become the richest and most powerful men in Hong Kong. Uh, Sir, Sir Robert Hotong Boseman is one of the, he's the Andrew Carnegie of Hong Kong. He helped finance the, the, the revolution of 1912 that established the Republic of China. And his younger brother, Ho Kong Tong, is Bruce Lee's grandfather. And he had, he was so rich, he had 13 concubines and a secret British mistress that we knew nothing about. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And with the secret British mistress, he produced Bruce Lee's mother, Grace Ho. And so Bruce Lee, it turns out, is five-eighths Han Chinese, one-quarter English, and one-eighth Dutch Jewish. That's amazing. We'll take him. Welcome to the tribe, <laughs> Bruce Leibowitz. As you I, are now known. I love this. So, Matthew, before we let you go, what are like the first three movies, like a starter pack for, for Bruce Lee, for people to watch over the weekend? 
You have to watch Enter the Dragon. That's the movie that made him a star. That's what all of the Bruce Lee fanatics watched the first time out. It's the first Hollywood a Hong Kong co-production. It's in English, which helps. Um, and it's a movie I think worked so well because Bruce Lee was absolutely terrified that they would recut the movie when they went back to Hollywood and give it over to the white star, uh, John Saxon. And they actually had plans to do that. So Bruce Lee made sure that he imprinted his personality on every single scene. And so his performance literally vibrates off the screen. The second movie I would go see is Way of the Dragon. It was his directorial debut. He wrote, starred, and directed it. Uh, the movie is a little sloppy, like any directorial debut, but it has the scene where he fights Chuck Norris, which is the best kung fu karate fight scene ever ever, ever filmed, mm-hmm. by far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can actually skip most of the movie and just go to that. Um, and it's a delight to see Chuck Norris getting the hair ripped off his chest by Bruce Lee, one of the great scenes ever. And then just to show that you're cool, you should see The Orphan from 1960. That was Bruce Lee's last Cantonese film he made when he was 18, in which he he's doing a kind of version of James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, and he, only instead of moping, he kicks ass. He, <laughs> the, what's interesting about his movies as a Cantonese star is he never did kick ass. There was no kung fu in them at all, and so he just plays a, a mentally disturbed teenager who's rebelling against a system that doesn't understand him. But it's fun to watch an eighteen-year-old Bruce Lee just act his butt off because in most movies you just see the presence, and in this one you can actually see his acting chops. How do you? Um how do you explain the fact that even though he was such a great big star, Asian Americans in film have remained and on TV have remained, you know, somewhat of a rarity? Uh, I think that's one of the great mysteries. Uh, what happened after World War II is that Asian males were essentially emasculated in Western films. And that's what Bruce Lee was uh, combating uh, this idea that they could only be houseboys or uh, what he called pigtailed coolie roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Bruce Lee wanted to bring this hyper-masculine, sexualized, over-the-top violent, uh, heroic figure. Uh, and after he left, the culture sort of forgot. Uh, and it wasn't until Jackie Chan in 1998 in Rush Hour that we had the second Chinese star ever star in a Hollywood movie. And even then, Jackie Chan plays a sort of desexualized, clownish role. Right. I mean, and, it's amazing if you've ever seen a Bruce Lee movie to then watch a Van Damme movie. Be like, why Why would you ever watch that? <laughs> exactly. You know? He's got pretty splits, and that's about it. And that's about it. Matthew Polly, thank you so much for being here. The book is Bruce Lee, A Life. You can get it probably wherever, right? Wherever, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores. Please support those. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Lil, you've actually sort of been two-timing us. You come here on Tuesdays and we record, but you've actually like also been, you know, like running off with The Moth, the amazing storytelling show, and like doing like a side hustle there. The Moth is a gorgeous mistress. I was very privileged uh, to be asked by The Moth to tell the sordid story of my childhood and how my father helped me realize uh, what manhood was really all about. Have a listen.
I grew up in Israel in the 1980s, and my father's mission in life was to make sure that his only son, me, grew up to be a real man. And so, as soon as I turned four, every Saturday, he would take me shooting, which was funny because my arm was exactly the size of a Smith & Wesson 45. And two or three years later, when I was six or seven, my father would take advantage of Israel's surprisingly relaxed car rental insurance policies, and he would rent a car to take me on driving lessons, uh, which were terrifying because even sitting on his lap, I didn't really reach the wheel. And every two or three weeks, there was a special treat. Uh, we would stop the rental car by the side of the road, and my father would make me go out and change tires, whether the car needed it or not, because in his mind, knowing how to change a tire was the epitome of manhood. And I really hated changing tires. And I really hated spending these Saturday afternoons with him, but he didn't really care because he was inducting me to the international brotherhood of macho men. And so every chance he got, he would take me to the movies to see his heroes. Men like Sylvester Stallone or Chuck Norris or Burt Reynolds. And I didn't mind these guys too much, but they were not my idols. My real idol was a real live person named the Motorcycle Bandit. He appeared on the scene uh, shortly after my 12th birthday, robbing bank after bank after bank all over Israel. He was in and out of the bank in under 40 seconds, never leaving behind any clue as to his real name or identity. And he just drove people insane. He got so popular that Israel's most famous comedy sketch show, sort of like the local version of Saturday Night Live, devoted an entire episode to the bandit, speculating in one bit that he probably never robbed the bank in Jerusalem because he didn't particularly care for that city. So you can imagine what happened the next day when, in an apparent tribute to his favorite television show, the motorcycle bandit robbed his one and only Jerusalem bank. People went insane. Women who worked at banks would write their names and phone numbers on little notes so that if the sexy heartthrob robber uh, happened to hit them up, maybe when he got off work, he would find their number and give them a call. But the people who loved the bandit most were us teenage boys. For us, he was a complete hero. And on Purim, which is more or less the Jewish equivalent of Halloween, we all dressed up like him in a leather jacket and a motorcycle helmet and a big shiny gun. So about a year and a half later, I'm 13 and a half, I'm walking home from the eighth grade and no one's home, so I sort of mosey over to the kitchen to make myself a snack. And I hear a knock on the door. But it's not a tap, tap, tap. It's a boom, boom, boom. So I open the door and there are three police officers standing there. And they're not looking at me, and none of them are saying anything. And finally, about half a minute later, one of them looks up and says, Son, we arrested your father a while ago with a motorcycle helmet and a leather jacket and a big shiny gun. And I remember my first thought was, No way! <laughs> you think... You think my dad with a beer belly and the receding hairline and the terrible jokes, you think that guy is the motorcycle bandit? But in the hours 
and the days and the weeks that passed, I learned that he was. <laughs> the real story, as I soon came to learn, began about two years earlier, when my father, who was 35 at the time, and the son of one of Israel's wealthiest family, uh, was summoned by his father to have the talk. Now, if you've watched uh, a couple episodes of Dallas or Dynasty or Knott's Landing, you know the talk. It's when the rich guy calls his wayward playboy son over uh, and says, son, it's time for you to grow up and be a man, take responsibility for your life and get a job. And my father didn't like that at all. So he stormed out of my grandfather's office and he hopped on his motorcycle, because of course, and he drove to the beach and he's sitting there watching the sunset over the Mediterranean and he's thinking really about his life. And, you know, my father grew up in the 60s, so he believed in sayings like, do what you love or follow your heart. So he decided to follow his heart and his heart led him to robbing banks. Now, as it turns out, he was good at it. He was great at it. He was an inventor, an innovator. He was the Elon Musk of the stick-up job. And later, I learned how he did it. And how he did it was incredible. He would rob a bank in under 40 seconds. He would run out, jump on his motorcycle, drive around a corner, up a ramp he had custom-built and into a van where he would pause and like some mad philosopher king, he would ponder the seminal existential question of bank robbing, which is, where's the last place you would ever look for a bank robber? And the answer is, and now is the point in the story where any of you contemplating this line of work may want to pay attention. The answer is that the last place you would ever look for a bank robber is the bank. And so my father would take off his jacket and his helmet and tuck the gun back into his pants and walk out of the van calmly around the corner back into the bank, which at that point was a crime scene sprawling with police officers. And one of these police officers would inevitably run up to my father and say, you can't be here, sir, this is a crime scene. And my father would look at him in this dopey look and say, oh, can I please just make a quick deposit? My wife will kill me if I don't. And the police officer would say something like, sure, but be quick about it. And my father would walk up to the bank teller and deposit the same exact cash he had robbed three minutes earlier. And this being the 1980s and computers were still kind of new, he made the cash virtually untraceable. It was a work of genius. He was so good at it and he became so popular that eventually he got cocky. He robbed one bank a day and then, and then two, and then two banks in two different cities. One time, he was um, riding in a cab on his way to the airport when the urge struck. Uh, he told the cab driver, do you please mind uh, stopping? I promise I'll only be a minute. It was literally true, he was only a minute. Uh, he robbed the bank, hopped back into the cab, drove to the airport and flew off for an all expenses paid vacation in New York. But you know how this story ends. Eventually, he was caught. And after he was arrested, life got really weird. In no small part because Israel, as you may have heard, being a small state uh, surrounded by enemies, has its own ideas about prison. And one of them is that prisoners get uh, the one weekend out of the month off to go home on vacation. <laughs> the logic being that since the country only has one 
really secure airport if you want to go ahead and try to escape to Gaza or Syria, you know, be our guest. <laughs> and so every fourth Friday, I would stop, um, I would go to the prison to pick my father up. And we would go out and have ourselves a, a weekend on the town. And people would come up to him and say, you know, high five him and pat him on the back and say things like, Bandit, we love you, you're cool. But to me, he wasn't cool. And he wasn't even the bandit. He was my dad, who had just done something so incredibly stupid that lent him with a 20-year prison sentence. But even weirder than that one weekend a month together were the three weekends a month apart. Because here I was, and it was Saturday, and there's no shooting practice, there's no driving lesson, no changing tires, no Burt Reynolds, and I didn't know what to do. So one afternoon I got dressed, which by the way was also an ordeal because when the police searched our house, uh, they took not only all of my father's belongings, but because we were more or less the same size, also all of mine. So I put on the, one of the few outfits I had, which was this really ratty, disgusting purple sweat suit with the Batman logo up front, which I assume the police just you know, thought no self-respecting bank robber would ever wear. Uh, and I walked out uh, and started walking around town literally looking for a sign. And then I saw it. It was a sign above a theater advertising an all-male Japanese modern dance show. <laughs> and I thought for maybe five seconds, and then I did something that I'm pretty sure my father would disown me for. I bought a ticket, and I went in. And I loved it. Here on stage were these amazing, elegant, graceful men. And guess what? They weren't punching each other in the face. They were not riding Harley Davidsons. They were dancing. And yet they were so secure in their bodies and their masculinities. And I thought to myself, if that's another way of being a man, what other ways are there? And thus began a, a two-decade-long process of trial and error of trying to figure out what kind of man I wanted to be. And look, some of the things I learned didn't surprise me at all. I love bourbon, and I am the kind of guy who would watch as much sports as you would let him in a given day. But some things were really surprising, like some French poets really moved me to tears, and even though bourbon was great, you know what else tastes really good? Rosé wine. And even though I'm really, really good at changing tires, if I get a flat now, I'm calling AAA. <laughs> I didn't share any of these insights with my father because, for one thing, he's not really the kind of guy who's into, you know, insights. Uh, but for another, by the time he got out of prison, I was already a man in full. It was too late for him to shape who I became in any meaningful way. And he still comes to visit from time to time in New York, where I live with my family. And on one of these recent visits, uh, he and I are sitting in my living room, not talking, as men do, not talk. And my son comes prancing into the room, my three-year-old boy. Now that boy looks exactly like me, 
just as I look exactly like my father. And if there's one thing in the world that that boy loves, it's his older sister. And if there's one thing in the world that his older sister loves, it's Disney princesses. <laughs> and in prances the child dressed like Princess Anna from Frozen. And I look at my son, and I look at my father looking at my son, who, by the way, looked amazing in this like, green taffeta with a, a black velvet bodice and some lovely lacing. And I know that my father is judging me. But you know what? I don't care. Because at that moment, I realized strangely that by going to jail when he did, he didn't just free me up of the burden of this macho nonsense. He also freed up my son to grow up as a happy boy who can pretend to be whoever he wants to be, even, or especially, a pretty, pretty princess. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that instead of going through life mindlessly as two tough guys, my son and I are free to become real men. Thank you very much. Our Jew of the Week is Arnold Gorlick, who is not only a neighbor of mine, but has become a very, very special friend and also has become family. He, he has done Passover with us, uh, he and his wife Twee. He has hosted us. His hospitality is legendary. He lets us hang out in his hammocks in his backyard. He's just one of those people who's, whose door is always open. He grew up in Brooklyn, where his father owned an appetizing store. And he majored in philosophy in college and then moved to New Haven, where he worked for the York Square Cinemas, a very famous and storied art house. When he left there, he purchased an old uh, shutdown theater out in Madison, about 15 miles east along the shoreline, renovated it, restored it, and in 1999 opened it as Madison Art Cinemas, which has become one of the great American independent movie houses. People drive for many, many miles away to see their movies at Madison Art Cinemas because Arnold really cares, because he, he greets people when they go in, he talks to people when they come out, he wants to know if they like the movies, he will say to certain patrons, hey, you liked that movie four months ago, so you're going to like this one that's coming up in a month. He really has found his calling and his vocation in life. And although he never became a dad, he has a lot to say about life and ultimately about fatherhood. So have a listen to me talking with my friend Arnold Gorlick in New Haven a couple months back. Um, so I wanted to have you on, first of all, be, well, because you've had an interesting life and you like talking about it. Um, start at the beginning. Where were you born? Technically, I was born in Staten Island, but we left when I was four years old. I arrived at four years old in Brooklyn, New York, around the corner from where Ebbets Field used to be. I don't think there's any imprint of Staten Island on me. So when I'm not on a radio show where I'm revealing all, I just say I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is inside of me. That era is inside of me. I used to go to sleep with the roar of the crowd in my bedroom. I could hear uh, the Star Spangled Banner in my bedroom. I stood at seven, eight years old at the foot of my bed with my hand on my chest, but not out of patriotism, out of pure solidarity with the people in the ballpark. 
and it informed my life. We used to play stickball in the neighboring streets to Ebbets Field. We imagined ourselves as minor league teams. So let's let's look at 1957. The Dodgers leave. You were 11 years old. Did you figure you were going to follow your father into the? It was the pickle business, right? No, he owned uh, an appetizing store, famous appetizers, and. So if you think of a deli, let's say a Jewish deli, primarily a Jewish deli sells cured meats. We sold cured fish. So all kinds of salmon, brined and smoked, all varieties of smoked and brined salmon, smoked whitefish, chubs, which came from the Great Lakes, uh, sable, which is smoked black cod, which is the most heavenly thing I've ever eaten. My brother and I, you know, uh, all our lives used to have this incredible food at home. I was the envy of every kid in my public school and in my junior high school. They used to come to school every day with their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or fluffernutter or a piece of bologna or something like that. And everybody would wait till I opened up my bag, which would be hand-carved smoked salmon with a little bit of cream cheese and maybe some capers. People would stop in. My mother would give the local children when they would sometimes stop in. She would hand them uh, a sour pickle for them to just walk out with. She was very sweet to the kids in the neighborhood. Your father, Irving, died when he was 51, you said? Correct. How how old were you? 15. Did you think, I'll get out of high school, then take over the store? I thought exactly the opposite, even before he died. Uh, I had a... um, uh, well, he died when I was 15, so I have an unresolved relationship with him. There were lots of conflicts coming that I knew were avoided by his death, but would have had to have come. He was overbearing to me, overbearing to my brother. We, uh, I could say we both have an unresolved relationship with him. He was volatile. I was afraid of him. I didn't like to work in the store. I hated working. I felt depressed to be in his presence. Um, Uh, So I always sought out the mentorship of older, strong, but gentle males. So what would I do when the store would be busy? If he ever knew it, he he never found out. I would go to work mixing dough with Sal across the street at Sal's Pizza Place while the store was busy. If he ever learned, I was working for free. But it was such an unoppressive, welcoming, approving atmosphere. And I, with my father, I always felt like I was walking through a minefield. I didn't know what would set him off so when did you think okay I'm 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 not going into the appetizing store or, or, so what plan did you start to formulate to get out of life in, in so I finally went to college I took six years to graduate because I developed a strategy to evade the draft in the Vietnam War which I have no regrets about my college roommate was Peter Spodek His father owned theaters, the Lincoln Theater, uh, the Crown Theater, and other theaters throughout the state of Connecticut. And I used to come up to theater openings. I love movies. He was the president of the Film Society. I was the vice president. And I applied for work with his dad, Bob Spodek, and began working in a little country theater called the Cheshire Cinema, which they were kind of running with the back of their hand, and uh, wasn't making enough. So I made application to the Projectionist Union for all the theaters in Greater New Haven, and there were a lot. So explain that to me. There was a Projectionist Union, and if any theater needed somebody, you'd get detailed out to them? How how did that work? It was a business agent. The business agent would call various members, say, 
uh, or we would call him anything today, he would say, nothing today, Arnold, everything is status quo. <laughs> <laughs> or he would call me up and say, would you go and take the uh, uh, the Cinemart, which is like a 1,200-seat theater in Hamden, or go to the Crown, the Pornographic Theater, or go to the Lowe's College, or the Roger Sherman Theater, or the Lincoln Theater, and they were all old-fashioned projectors with 20-minute reels where you manually changed over between each one. There were a lot more theaters back then, weren't there? In New Haven alone, there was the Paramount on Temple and Crown when I arrived, uh, the Whaley, Whitney, and Westville. The Westville was where the bank is now in Westville. The Whitney is near Whitney and Putnam. Do you miss those days when there were all those small houses? There was something wonderful about it because there was a screening room downtown in uh, New Haven on College Street, a 40-seat screening room with a projection room, which sometimes I was like, okay, Arnold, uh, there's a screening at uh, 1 o'clock. Would you take it at 254 College Street? Sure. Um, And there would be this great banter and cigar-chomping and sarcastic wisecracks throughout about movies and about each other. And uh, I would go to those screenings. I remember when I first arrived in 1970, they had two desks, Samson and Spodek had two desks next to each other with yellowed walls from their cigars and phones with extensions, both talking to two people at the same time. And Spodek would say, come on, Samson, we got to call that schmuck in Boston. And Samson would go, which one? <laughs> you know, something like that. When I was in college from 92 to 96, I used to go to the York Square Cinemas on Broadway in New Haven. You were there. You were the front of the house. You remember me? Of course. Everyone knew. Uh-huh. You know, we, thought, we, we all thought you were the owner, but you weren't the owner. No, and that got me into trouble. How so? Well, uh, Spodek had the pride of authorship. Uh, I worked with such dedication and such heart that people assumed I had a proprietary interest in the place. And um, Bob Spodek saw himself as a man with a legacy, that he built a legacy in New Haven, and that I was robbing it from him, and uh, began to see me as a threat. Did he fire you because people thought you were him? Thought he, you were the boss? In the end. And how old were you when that happened? Uh, 50. You'd been working for him since you were 22? 23. 23. Your father died. I I don't know if you'd say he was a father figure to you, but he, he was. because he was also, he also assumed that role. He was very paternalistic he and overbearing. A father figure, the father you'd had after losing your own as a son. But like my father, uh, not the most wholesome relationship. Very difficult to give approval, hypercritical, uh, sarcastic. He would say to me things, you know, if you had more initiative, this theater would be doing better. I didn't feel self-possessed or that I was a fully developed adult until I owned that theater and started to run it with my own direction and bought out my partners. To me, I thought that Freud was right, that we have to kill our fathers. I really understand this concept, and it doesn't mean it's a hostile thing. It just means they have to become regular human beings. The son has to finally take his place in the world and then develop a normalized relationship with the father. Well, the guy I was supposed to do it with died. The second chance I had, uh, he just fired me. Uh, so I didn't get to resolve that. But, but I love what I do. That was Mark talking with Arnold Korolek. Kind of want to go see an indie movie now.
treat for people who are listening on Thursday, the day this comes out, I will be at the Jewish Museum tonight moderating a very fun discussion between novelist Rachel Kadish and historian Lisa Moses Leff as part of the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book series. You can find a link to that in our Facebook page, on my Facebook page, on my Twitter, on my Instagram, everywhere. I hope to see you. And then our next live show is an amazing one. On July 18th, we answer the question, is it okay to say the word Jap, Jewish American princess? We have an amazing show lined up. We have Jill Cargman coming on to talk the, the odd mom out herself. We have a, a bunch of other fun guests. We actually made a, a short film. We're really we're, we're, we're pivoting to video. The first ever unorthodox movie. Yeah, just a, talking to experts and talking to historians and interesting people about whether like what the word means and Starring who can say it and Matt who can. Starring Matt Damon. Robert De Niro. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's really, really great. We have Bacheva Marcus, Judith R- Rosenbaum, and I'm in it. Our boss, Alana Newhouse, is in it. It is great. So July 18th, 7.30 p.m., tickets at jccmanhattan.org. And we are starting our fundraiser. We have a bunch of really, really fun gifts if you donate certain levels. We have little enamel pins. We have special special edition T-shirts and just a bunch of other fun stuff. So you can check that out at tabletmag.com slash donate. We don't ask for much. Just just, just money. money. You know, it's awkward to ask for money, but you know, all the other podcasts do. It's it. not awkward to ask for money. And what what this does, what the fundraiser does, is actually allows us to do more shows, like the conversion episode and an upcoming episode we have about Judaism all across America, and just helps us to get into pockets of Jewish communities that we actually don't reach. Get out know. of our of our Manhattan studio. Yeah, yeah. We get wanna, off our high horse get, yeah, and, wanna, and see America. We want to see real America. So please, if you can spare any shekels, tabletmag.com slash donate. Leal, Mazel Tov's. We're at that time of the show. Yeah. Um, so speaking of indie movies, which have been a theme of today's show, um, I saw a, a movie this week which really struck me as you know one of the greatest uh, I've seen in a very long time. One of the only movies that I've seen in a while that takes faith and spirituality seriously. Uh, first Reformed. So my Mazel Tov this week goes to director and screenwriter Paul Schrader and to star Ethan Hawke who really uh, portray an incredible journey of faith and doubt and healing and transcendence. Go see this movie. It's not, it's not The Avengers, but it will make you feel much better about the future of humanity. I love that your muscle tubs really oscillate between like wildly sarcastic and wildly earnest. That's sort of... Those are the only two modes that I have. You have two poles. So uh, that's, all, that's all I got. My Mazel Tov goes out to my grandma, my grandma Seal. She, <laughs> oh, it's, oh, and I'm the earnest no, one. No, it's her birthday today. And uh, to my nana, I love no, you. No, she's not a nana. She's not a bubby. Nope. She a grandma. She a grandma. She is, she's, it, it's she's her amazing. birthday. She's amazing. You've met her. She, her birthday's on Flag Day. I will never forget it ever. <laughs> and I remember we used to do like Flag Day, like, pre, like things in elementary school. And I'd be like, it's my grandma's birthday today. So anyway, Grandma Seal is in town. Um, I'm going to see her later today and over the weekend, and I'm really excited. And so, Grandma, I love you. And Mark actually has his own Mazel Tov because you know had to get had to get some Mazels in. Let's hear it. Oh yeah, I'm back from beyond the grave to give a Mazel Tov. Easy one this week. My college friend Katie Porter won the Democratic nomination for Congress. In California's 45th, this is a district that um, went for Hillary. It's represented by a Republican incumbent, Mimi Walters, but it went blue in 2016. So it's, it is flippable. And if anyone can flip that mother, it is Catherine Moore Porter, Katie Porter, uh, Iowa bred, seriously homespun, but with a wicked wit. And, uh, and she's going to do it. She's going to bring it home for the Dems in, uh, in the California 45th. Go Katie. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. We come to you live. To book us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear us. Hit up bit.ly.com slash unorthoshirt to find the latest unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers to just brand yourself with, with, with the unorthodox love. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow me on Instagram at sbutnik. You'll see pictures of my cat. Join our Facebook group where Mark sometimes posts videos of him and his family. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talushkin. It is edited by Noah Levinson, who is amazing. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Natan Papustin from the Heschel School in Manhattan. The class of 2018 thanks you. Kosher Slaughtering by Noah Asher. We recorded Argo Studios, which has agreed to hide us all if it ever comes to that. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.